Thank you very much, Stuart, and thank you for organizing this conference, from which I've already learned a great deal, rather more than you're going to learn in the next um, 45 <laughs> minutes, I'm afraid. So, Wilfred Dunn. In the long history of English literature, there have been many notable literary encounters. Keats and Coleridge in 1819, Wilde and Whitman in 1882, Wolfe and Hardy in 1926. None of those, however, proved as important to the future of English literature as the meeting we remember today that of Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon. When the sailing lieutenant knocked on the captain's door at Craig Lockhart War Hospital in August 1917, there could have been hardly been two men less alike. Whereas Sassoon, six years older and almost a foot taller, came from a rich and privileged family, had been to a public school, Owen had been brought up in the back streets of Birkenhead and Shrewsbury. His mother, unlike Sassoon's socialite mother, was very devout, and for a time her piety was shared by her eldest, and one has to say, her favourite son. Whenever in those years they were apart, in Sunday letter after Sunday letter, young Wilfred would tell his mother the text of the day's sermon, list the hymns that were sung and would normally end with an extremely pious postscript. It has to be said, he was rather a priggish small boy. His early preoccupation with religion, for a time equal and perhaps even exceeded his preoccupation with poetry, even the poetry of Keats, which was for him always the gold standard. And this eventuated in, came to a climax in what was known to the family as Wilfrid's Church. This is splendidly described in his brother's memoir called Journey from Obscurity. Aided and encouraged by my mother, Harold Owen writes, Wilfrid would on Sunday evenings arrange our small sitting room to represent a church. The table would be moved away all available chairs collected and arranged for pews, an armchair turned backwards, making a pulpit and lectern. At first it was all very simple, but as his enthusiasm grew and his imagination took wing, it became more and more elaborate. And my mother was kept busy making altar cloths, stoles, and a perfectly fashioned small linen surplice, for she was a most superb needlewoman. Finally, she made a bishop's mitre. <laughs> Wilfred would spend a long time arranging the room, after which he would robe himself, and looking very priest-like in his surplus and mitre, would call us in to form the congregation. He would then conduct a complete evening service with remarkable exactitude, and would end by reading a short sermon he had prepared with great care and thought. As you can see, a strong theatrical element in our young poet's nature. Enjoyed frightening his younger brother, brothers and sister with gothic ghost stories. And he hadn't been writing poetry for very long when that hell, of which he heard a great deal at his mother's knee, 
found its way into his poems. Leaving school in 1911, he went to work as a lay assistant to the vicar of Dunstan, a little village outside Reading, where a year later there took place the double funeral of a mother and her four-year-old daughter. Owen's reaction to this village tragedy prompted a poem more direct and I think more genuine than anything he'd written before. I'd like to read you the first and last stanzas um, of what you'll see is not a very good poem, but it is, I think, a very interesting poem. Deep under turfy grass and heavy clay they laid her bruised body and the child. Poor victims of a swift mischance were they, adown death's trapdoor suddenly beguiled. I, weeping not as others, but heart wild affirmed to heaven that even love's fierce flame must fail beneath the chill of this cold shame. And there stood one child with them, whose pale brows wore beauty like our mother Eve's, whom seeing I could not choose but undo all my vows, and cry that it were well that human being and birth and death should be just for the freeing of one such face from chaos's murky womb, for hell's reprieve is worth not this one bloom. As you see, not a very good poem, but surely <coughs> interesting to see the future author of Miners and Strange Meeting standing on the brink of the grave and aware both of heaven and hell and much more intensely aware of hell. In January 1913, a surge of revivalist fervour at Dunsman forced Owen to recognise that his belief in evangelical religion was much less strong than his allegiance <coughs> to poetry. He had to explain this to the vicar and was sternly interviewed on a number of occasions. No doubt the Bible was quoted. It may have been the vicar who drew his attention to the epistle of St. Jude, a thunderous denunciation of certain men crept in unawares among the faithful, filthy dreamers who defile the flesh and corrupt the church. These are described as raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Remember that blackness of darkness forever, we'll meet it again. A few months later, when Owen had left Dunstan and recovered from what I think we would now call a nervous breakdown after he left Dunstan, he began an untitled poem that opened, O world of many worlds, O life of lives, what centre hast thou? Where am I? O whither is it thy fierce onrush drives? Fight I, or drift, or stand, or fly? In a later stanza, he sees himself on rushing as a meteor through darkness in company with others. This is the track reserved for my endeavour. Spanless the erring way I wend. Blackness of darkness is my mead forever. And barren plunging without end. In defiance of the Bible and the church, 
darkness is now welcomed as the environment proper to a poet. The track reserved for his poetic endeavour is that of a wandering star or meteor, fast, eccentric, lone, warning the earth of wider ways unknown. Again, remember that word, warning. We'll meet that again, too. As the spring of 1913 drew into summer, he several times bicycled to the archaeological site of the Roman city of Uriconium. With him, he took George Fox's paperback guide to the city, and perhaps in his head, these stanzas of a poem by Hausmann. On Wenlock Edge, the woods in trouble, his forest fleece the reek in heaves, the gale it plies the saplings double, and thick on seven snow the leaves. Twould blow like this through holt and hanger when Uricon the city stood. Tis the old wind in the old anger, but then it threshed another wood. The gale it plies the saplings double, the blow so hard twill soon be gone. Today the Roman and his trouble are ashes under Uricon. In Fox's guide to Uriconium, Owen read, and I quote, that the city and its inhabitants perished by fire and sword. Everywhere when the earth which covers its remains is turned over, it's found to be black from the burning, and plain traces of the massacre of the citizens showed when the ruins amongst which the visitor strays were excavated. Skeletons of men, women and children lay among the blackened walls. In their terror, some of the unhappy people had sought refuge in the hollow floors of the baths. The dark and narrow hiding place did not avail to save the fugitives. For the, wall, for the blazing roofs in their fall rocked all the way had escaped and they perished in the smoke of the burning building. Fox refers to an old Welsh poem which he says described in vivid language the destruction of a city on the Welsh border and the slaughter of the chief to whom the city belonged. This mention of a poem that the guide calls the death song of Uriconium may have given Owen the idea for a poem of his own. He called it Uriconium and Ode. I'd like to read you one of its eight stanzas. Um, three or four of them are on your handout. Um, stanza, a stanza that draws on detail from objects in the Archaeological Museum where Wilfred and Harold spent many happy hours. For here lie remnants from a banquet table, oysters and marrow bones and seeds of grape, the statement of whose age must sound a fable, and Samian jars whose sheen and flawless shape look fresh from potter's mould. Plasters with Roman finger marks impressed, bracelets that from the warm Italian arm might seem to be scarce cold, and spears, the same that pushed the Cumri west, unblunted yet, with tools of forge and farm abandoned as a man in sudden fear drops what he holds to help his swift career. For sudden was Rome's flight and wild the alarm, the Saxon shock was like Vesuvius's qualm. In an important sense, 
This is Erin's first war poem. The compassionate awareness of the victims' bodies, so prominent a feature of his later and greater poems, enables him, enables us, to feel those plasters with Roman finger marks impressed. Bracelets that from the warm Italian arm might seem to be scarce cold. And it sharpens our perception of the weapons, spears unblunted, yet unblunted by human flesh and bones. Euryconium and Ode anticipate the later and greater poems in a more mysteriously prophetic way. As the 20-year-old poet descends in imagination into the grave of the city and its slaughtered inhabitants, he says, Ruins on England's heart press heavily. The earth is seen metaphorically as a threatened human body. Many of the later war poems involve <coughs> a descent into wounded earth, trench, grave, hell. Probably within weeks of writing Euryconium, Owen left um, uh, Dunsdon um, and he left to teach English in France. He was there at the outbreak of the war in August 1914 and wrote his mother a surprising letter. War, he writes, affects me less than it ought. But I can do no good service to anybody by agitating for news or making dole over the slaughter. I feel my own life all the more precious and more dear in the presence of this deflowering of Europe. While it is true that the guns will effect a little useful reading, I am furious with chagrin to think that the wines, the mines which were to have excelled the civilization of 10,000 years are being annihilated, and bodies, the product of eons of natural selection, melted down to pay for political statues. Phrases like a little not useful weeding now make us wince, but we must remember that almost no one in 1914 <coughs> foresaw the horrors that would follow. Owen foresaw more than many, however, in a poem he started about this time, uh, a sonnet called 1914, which you have on your handout. It begins, War broke, and now the winter of the world with perishing great darkness closes in. Great darkness has become an image of war. Having already decided that darkness was the poet's true environment, he seems to have sensed as early in 1914 that the particular kind of darkness reserved for his own endeavour was to be the darkness of war. In September 1915, he returned to England and joined up in the Artist Rifles. Throughout 1916, he was training, and then, in the first days of 1917, he was plunged into the horrors of the Battle of the Somme. As he wrote to his mother of one episode, my dugout held 25 men tight packed. Water filled it to a depth of one or two feet, leaving, say, four feet of air. One entrance had been blown in and blocked, so far the other remained. The Germans knew we were staying there and decided we shouldn't. Those 50 hours were the agony of my happy life. 
every 10 minutes on Sunday afternoon seemed an hour. I nearly broke down and let myself drown in the water that was now slowly rising over my knees. Towards six o'clock, when I supposed you would be going to church, the showing grew less intense and less accurate, so that I was mercifully helped to do my duty and crawl, wade, climb and flounder over no man's land to visit my other post. It took me half an hour to move about 150 yards, and then he would have been travelling on his stomach. In the platoon on my left, the sentries over the dugout were blown to nothing. One of these poor fellows was my first son, servant, whom I rejected. If I had kept him, he would have lived. The servants don't do sentry duty. I kept my own sentries halfway down the stairs during the more terrific bombardment. In spite of this, one lad was blown down and, I'm afraid, blinded. Notice the appalling polarity of the battlefield and the church. Owen, thinking of his mother almost all the time, thinks of her going to church as the shells are falling around him. Remember too that sentry will meet him again. With a reference to Pilgrim's progress read beside his parents' sitting room fire, he continues his description of the battlefield. It is like the eternal place of gnashing of teeth. The slough of despond could be contained in one of its crater holes. The fires of Sodom and Gomorrah could not light a candle to it to find a way to Babylon the fallen. It is pockmarked like a body of vilest disease and its odour is the breath of cancer. Throughout April, Owen was engaged in fierce fighting. He told his mother, for 12 days we lay in holes, where at any moment a shell might put us out. I think the worst incident was one wet night when we lay up against a railway embankment. A big shell lit on the top of the bank just two yards from my head. Before I awoke, I was blown in the air right away from the bank. I passed most of the following days in a railway cutting, in a hole just big enough to lie in and covered with corrugated iron. My brother officer of B Company, Second Lieutenant Gaukroger, lay opposite in a similar hole, but he was covered with earth and no relief will ever relieve him, nor will his rest be a nine days rest. On the 1st of May, he was seen by his commanding officer to be behaving strangely. His condition was diagnosed as shell shock, and he was sent home to Craig Lockhart War Hospital, where in August he knocked on the door of another patient, Captain Siegfried Sassoon. Under his arm, Owen carried the old huntsman and other poems, Sassoon's first collection of war poems, which he wanted him to sign. If you want to see the book, it's upstairs in a showcase in the English faculty library. Inspired by this book and encouraged by Sassoon's wonderfully constructive criticism, Owen found a language for his own experience. It was probably in August that he read the anonymous prefatory note to an anthology, Poems of Today, 1916, also up in the English faculty library, Owen's copy, which began, this book has been compiled in order that boys and girls 
remember the boys and girls, already perhaps familiar with the great classics of the English speech, may also know something of the newer poetry of their own day. Most of the writers are living, and the rest are still vivid memories among us. While one of the youngest, almost as these words are written, has gone singing to lay down his life for his country's cause. There is no arbitrary isolation of one theme from another. They mingle and interpenetrate throughout to the music of Pan's flute and of love's viol and the bugle call of endeavour and the passing bell of death. Owen has seen lots of men laying their life down, but not many, I suspect, singing uh, rather more screaming, trying to stuff their intestines back into their ribcage. So it's not difficult to imagine him stung by these sentiments, sitting down to write, what passing bells for these who die as cattle. Only the monstrous anger of the guns, only the stuttering rifles' rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. No mockeries now for them, no prayers, nor bells, nor any voice of mourning, save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells, and bugles calling for them from sad shires. What candles may be held to speed them all? Not in the hands of boys, but in their eyes shall shine the holy glimmers of goodbyes. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall. Their flowers, the tenderness of patient minds, and each slow dusk a drawing down of blinds. Those who die like cattle in the slaughterhouse die in such numbers that there's no time to give them the trappings of a Christian funeral that Owen remembers from his Dunstan days. Instead, they receive a brutal parody of such a service. The stuttering rifles praying presumably that they'll kill them, the choirs of shells wailing as they hunt them down. The bugles may sound the last post for them, but they had previously called them to the colours in those same sad shires. And so bitterly but obliquely, Owen assigns to church and state responsibility for their deaths. The turn at the end of the octave, the first eight lines, brings us home, brings us over the channel, and the sestet opens with a question paralleling the first. What candles may be held to speed them all? It's a gentler question than what passing bells for these who die as cattle, preparing for the gentler answer, that instead of the parodic rituals offered by rifle, shell, and bugle, those who love the soldiers will mark their deaths with observances more heartfelt, more permanent than those prescribed by convention. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall, whereas the soldier might normally expect to have the Union Jack draped as a pall over his coffin. There aren't enough Union Jacks to go around, so no Union Jacks. Um, their pall is the the white pall of the brow of the wife, the mother, the girlfriend, who, whose brow will cover their memories for as long as that woman lives. In much the same way, 
as each slow dusk is a drawing down of blinds, not the conventional pulling down blinds when someone has died in the family for a fortnight, but for, these, for those who remember them, every dusk for the rest of their lives will be the equivalent of drawing down of blinds. Other poems of this period spring from a similarly indignant response to an earlier text. Don't forget the Coram Est was originally addressed, as Jane reminded you yesterday, to Jessie Pope. Author of numerous children's books before the war, she had, from 1914, conjured a sterner music from her lyre. Um, and again, one can imagine Owen's reaction to her variation of the Who's for Tennis formula in the jaunty little poem that was on the board yesterday. Who is for the trench? Are you, my laddie? Who will follow the French? With you, my laddie? Who's fretting to begin? Who's going to win? And who wants to save his skin? Do you, my laddie? Some such doggerel would seem to have provoked Owen's horrendous illustration of the Latin tag from Horace's Odes, so often quoted by writers of Miss Pope's persuasion, also by a clergyman in the pulpit, also by newspaper editors and leader writers. Dulcet decorum est, meaning of course, it is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge. Till on the haunting flares we turned our backs and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five nines that dropped behind. Gas! Gas! Quick, boys! an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or line. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. This exemplum, as the medieval rhetoricians would have called it, is followed by a moralitas, a caption, if you like, of passionate indignation, as the poet who himself loved children addresses himself with superb rhetorical suspension to the children's poet who exhorted them to play the game. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. In Sassoon's book, Sherston's Progress, he described the knights in Craig Lockhart like this. 
One lay awake and listened to feet padding along passages which smelt of stale cigarette smoke, for the nurses couldn't prevent insomnia-ridden officers from smoking half the night in their bedrooms. They kept smoking trying to prevent themselves from going to sleep. You don't want to go to sleep because of the dream. One became conscious that the place was full of men whose slumbers were morbid and terrifying, men muttering uneasily or suddenly crying out in their sleep. Around me was that underworld of dreams, haunted by submerged memories of warfare and its intolerable shocks and self-lacerating failures to achieve the impossible. By daylight, each mind was a sort of aquarium for the psychopath, that was then the current work of a psychologist, I think, for the psychopath to study. In the daytime, sitting in a sunny room, a man could discuss his psychoneurotic symptoms with his doctor, who could diagnose phobias and conflicts and formulate them in scientific terminology. But by night, each man was back in his doomed sector of a horror-stricken front line where the panic and stampede of some ghastly experience was reenacted among the livid faces of the dead. No doctor could save him then, when he became the lonely victim of his dream disasters and delusions. The realities of battle, banished from Owen's waking mind, now erupt into his dreams and into his poems. Dreams and poems alike haunted by tormented eyes, those, I believe, of his blinded century. Discharged from Craig Lockhart in November 1917, he spent Christmas with his regiment at Scarborough, and there he read Henri Barbousse's book Le Feu in its English translation, Under Fire, a book that Sassoon had lent him. Both of them were hugely impressed by it. As well they might be, because it's what you probably know, one of the most brilliant and searing accounts of life on the Western Front. It made an immediate impact on Owen and its influence can be detected in several of his poems of this period. One such death appears in his transformation of this sentence from Barbusi's chapter 9. This is the English version of Barbusi's chapter 9. The soldier held his peace. In the distance, he saw the night as they would pass it, cramped up, trembling with vigilance in the deep darkness at the bottom of the listening hole, whose ragged jaws showed in black outline all around whenever a gun hurled its door into the sky. Owen expanded this into a vision of one of the many mouths of hell. A a manuscript brilliantly reassembled by Edmund London, um, whom we have to thank for this poem, because all that remains in the Owen materials is this one crazy cross-hatched, messed-about manuscript, um, which we can now turn into, I think, a very powerful little poem. Cramped in that funneled hole, they watch the dawn open a jagged rim around a yawn of death's jaws, which had all but swallowed them, stuck in the bottom of his throat of phlegm. They were in one of the many mouths of hell, not seen of seers in visions, only felt as teeth of traps, when bones and the dead are smelt under the mud, where long ago they fell, mixed with the sour, sharp odour 
of the shell. In this poem, we can see Owen reacting against the work for vision of another poet, English poet, Tennyson, and the charge of the light brigade. Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600. I would like to know whether Owen was consciously correcting Tennyson's vision <coughs> of battle, or whether, as I suspect, it was a subconscious recollection, just as I'm sure it was a subconscious recollection of Barbus that led to the construction of that poem. The important point, I think, is that bodily entry into the earth, as they're described, becomes a major theme of the mature poems. Ater, asleep, and minors, which you have on your handout, which I should like to look at in some detail. On the 12th of January 1918, there was a pit explosion in the Staffordshire Colliery, in which 155 men and boy miners were killed. Owen read the newspaper accounts, and shortly afterwards told his mother that he'd written a poem on the Colliery disaster, but he added, I get mixed up with the war at the end. Before the fire in his grate, which tells us smoked horribly in the wind, he wrote, Miners. There was a whispering in my half, a sigh of the cold, grown wistful of a former earth it might recall. There's something curious about the personification of this cold that can whisper and sigh, grown wistful, notice the wordplay, of a former earth it might recall. I listened for a tale of leaves and smothered ferns, fond forests, and the low, sly lives before the fawns. My fire might so show steam phantoms simmer from time's old cauldron before the birds made nests in summer, or men had children. The peaceful evocations of these stanzas are now rudely undercut by a blunt conjunction. But, but the coals were murmuring of their mind, and moans down there of boys that slept dry sleep, and men writhing for air. And I saw white bones in the cinder shard, bones without number, many the muscled bodies charred, and few remember. The poet remembers Lancashire miners who had been in the first platoon he ever commanded, and those other miners who drove their perilous saps or tunnels below the surface of no man's land to mine the enemy trenches. I thought of some who worked dark pits of war and died digging the rock, where death reputes peace lies indeed. There's a disturbing and surely intentional ambiguity about that word, lie. Peace lies indeed. But the thought of peace introduced another vision. Comforted years will sit soft-chaired in rooms of amber. The years will stretch their hands, well cheered by our lives' ember. Our lives. The poet now numbers himself with those who worked dark pits of war and died. The centuries will burn rich loads with which we groaned whose warmth shall lull their dreaming lids while songs are crooned. 
But they will not dream of us poor lads left in the ground. How different from his own tormented nightmares will be the peaceful dreams of those who, without knowing what they do, warm their hands at our lives' ember. And that last stanza is a rich illustration of what Owen could do with the paralyzed. Um, his major gift, one might say, to, to English poetry. Um, had been used before, Christopher Ricks identified a poem by Barnes, um, the dialect poet um, who uses paradigms in on one poem very, very um, consistently and skillfully. But Owen uses it in his poems to quite brilliant effect. And we've been brought up to think that this, the term paradigm, which Blunden invented, um, paradigm normally goes from a, a higher to a lower sound. Um, but in this poem, it moves both ways. Um, the descending sound gives the poem their sort of dying fall, but when the sense lifts and you get a more hopeful possibility of the paradigm rising. So here, the centuries will burn rich loads with which we groan, whose warmth shall lull their dreaming lids. Our songs are crooned, but they will not dream of us poor lads left in the ground. Paradigms rising and falling following the, the mood of the poem. Probably before that same smoky fire, Owen drafted his more famous vision of the hell where youth and laughter go. Um, <coughs> the title of the poem, Strange Meeting, which you have on your handout, are taken from these lines, which most of you will know, from Shelley's poem, The Revolt of Islam. And one whose spear had pierced me leaned beside with quivering lips and humid eyes and all seemed like some brothers on a journey wide gone forth who now strange meetings did before in a strange land. As editor of the Craig Lockhart Hospital magazine, The Hydra, which again you will find in a case upstairs, Owen had published Sassoon's poem, The Rear Guard, in which the speaker, groping along the tunnel, step by step, saw someone lie humped at his feet, half hidden by a rug, and stooped to give the sleeper's arm a tug. The sleeper proves to be dead, and the narrator, climbing through darkness to the twilight air, unloading hell behind him, step by step. This poem, in a terrible cry from Barbusi's Under Fire, when I'm sleeping, I dream that I'm killing him over again, may also have contributed something to Owen's nightmare vision. And as in Miners, the dying fall of the Pararines underscores the tragic unfulfillment that is the theme of Strange Meeting. It seemed that out of battle I escaped down some profound, dull tunnel, long since scooped through granites which titanic walls had groined. Yet also there encumbered sleepers groaned too fast in thought or death to be disturbed. Then, as I probed them, one sprang up and stared with piteous recognition in fixed eyes, lifting distressful hands as if to bless, and by his smile I knew that sullen hall 
by his dense smile, I knew we stood in hell. The vision of a subterranean hell, its many mouths agape for the unwary, can be traced back through miners, the fragment cramped in that funneled hole, the Dunstan elegy deep under turfy grass and heavy clay, back through Uriconium to the Calvinist hell, hell of which Owen heard at his mother's knee. These descents into the underworld have a curious common denominator. The Dunstan elegy for the mother and child speaks of chaos's murky womb. The landscape of the show is said to be pitted with great pox and scabs of plagues. And smell came up from those foul openings as out of mouths or deep wounds, deepening. In the fragment cramped in that funneled hole, the soldier watched the yawn of death's jaws, which had all but swallowed them, stuck in the bottom of his throat of phlegm. And in strange meeting, the speaker escaped down a tunnel through granites which titanic walls had groined. In each case, the earth is described in terms of the human body, and in three out of four instances, there's a marked sense of physical loathing. This comes strangely, tragically, from a poet whose early poems are full of lyrical descriptions of beautiful bodies and celebrations of the natural world. In September 1918, Owen returned to the front under no illusions about what awaited him. Before going into the trenches, he wrote to Sassoon, Serenity Shelley never dreamed of crowns me. Will it last when I shall have gone into caverns and abysms such as he never reserved for his worst demons? Once again, his image is of hell. And that September, remembering his soldier blinded in January 1917, he wrote, I think the last poem you have on your handout, The Century. We'd found an old Bosch dugout, and he knew and gave us hell. The shell on frantic shell lit full on top, but never quite burst through. Rain, guttering down in waterfalls of slime, kept slush waist high and rising hour by hour, and choked the steps too thick with clay to climb. What murk of air remained, stank old and sour with fumes of whiz-bangs and the smell of men who had lived their years and left their curse in the den, if not their corpses. There we herded from the blast of whiz-bangs, but one found our door at last, buffeting eyes and breath, snuffing the candles, and thud, flump, thud, down the steep steps came thumping and splashing in the flood, deluging muck the sentry's body. Then his rifle, hands rolled Bosch bombs and mud in ruck on ruck. We dredged it up for dead, until he whined, Oh, sir, my eyes, I'm blind, I'm blind, I'm blind. Coaxing, I held a flame against his lids and said, If you could see the least blurred light, he was not blind. In time, he'd get all right. I can't, he sobbed. Eyeballs, huge, bulged like squids, watch my dreams still. 
Yet I forgot him there in posting next for duty and sending a scout to beg a stretcher somewhere and floundering about to other posts <coughs> under the shrieking air. Those other wretches, how they bled and spewed, and one who would have drowned himself for good. I try not to remember these things now. Let dread hark back for one word only. How half listening to that sentry's moans and jumps and the wild chattering of his shivered teeth renewed most horribly whenever crumps pummeled the roof and slogged the air beneath. Through the dense din, I say, I heard him shout, I see your lights! But ours had long died out. The torrential movement of this poem makes it seem simpler, more straightforward than I think it is. Consider its opening. We'd found an old <coughs> Bosch dugout and he knew and gave us hell. The slang figure of speech conceals the recurrent metaphor. When he speaks of one who would have drowned himself for good, he means more than just once and for all. He may well have in mind a moment when death by drowning remember that 1917 letter, seemed to him good and preferable to living. In his famous draft preface, Owen wrote, All a poet can do today is warn. Remember the warning of that early poem long before he ever went to the front. That is why the true poets must be truthful. It sounds so easy, but it's not easy to tell the truth in a poem, especially a truth from which the memory recoils. He tells the truth when he says, I try not to remember these things now. But when he tries to forget them, eyeballs, huge bulge like squids, watch my dreams still. In those dreams, the horror is reborn, the reality of battle reshaped to the dimensions of the poem poems to which we, his readers, owe more than to any others, our vision of the reality of the Western Front, of hell on earth. Thank you. Mm.